2: Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese, and I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Melvin Rogers. Melvin is professor of political science at Brown University. He specializes in political theory with emphasis on democracy, citizenship, and the American and African-American intellectual tradition of social thought. His new book has just been published with Princeton University Press. Its title is The Darkened Light of Faith, Race, Democracy, and Freedom in African-American Political Thought. Frederick Douglass's 1852 speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, is notoriously fiery, no doubt, part of what's gripping about it is a tension within it. Douglass begins by, I think, sincerely praising the founders and their philosophical principles. But then he turns to a devastating critique of the hypocrisy of the United States. Underlying Douglass' argument is a commitment to the democratic project that the United States represents, but a commitment that one imagines could be sustained. Only with extraordinary effort, what prevented Douglass from embracing an understandable, warranted pessimism that the democratic experiment in the United States had failed or had never really been taken up? Now, in the darkened light of faith, Melvin Rogers takes his reader on a journey through the efforts of African-American philosophers, social critics, commentators, and artists to make sense of the United States. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about, but let's begin as we normally do with our guest. Hi, Melvin. Hey, Bob, thanks for having me. <laughs> How's it going today? It's going well, it's going well. Glad to hear that. Um, You know, we usually start uh, with, with the author uh, himself. Can you tell us a bit about yourself, Melvin? Sure,
1: well, as you said at the outset, I'm a professor of political science at Brown University where I teach political theory. Uh, and I'm also associate director of the Center for philosophy politics and economics here at at Brown um so I I, I suppose I I'll, I'll say a word about um the sort of intellectual side um, of uh, of uh, of myself so I am uh animated by um tr- sort of trying to sort of understand um how to make sense of 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 Black people's commitments to the United States and how reflecting on that reveals something about the sort of interior of democracy. Um, This preoccupation didn't start with thinking about African-Americans, it started with thinking about pragmatism, um, in particular the, the, the philosophy of John Dewey and the sort of importance of uncertainty and fragility that I sort of detected in his philosophy. And at the end of the first book that I wrote, which was on John Dewey, uh, I found myself thinking, well, uh, sort of Dewey gives us a philosophical account of uncertainty and fragility, but who has really lived it in the United States? um There's a variety of people I could turn to, but I but I turned uh to the tradition of of African-American political thought. Uh, and that tradition, in some ways, um along with the tradition of pragmatism, has sustained me ever since
2: fantastic. um. So can we begin with the title of the book? Um, uh, So the darkened light of faith um, uh, really captures um, what I see as a central thread of the argument of the book, which connects up with uh, um, uh, what you had just said about yourself. and that thread is perhaps sort of also typified in the the uh Du Bois's contrast between being hopeless and uh being unhopeful um can you tell us a little bit about the title yeah sure
1: so I um uh, so the title itself uh is the product of an exchange with a dear dear friend and colleague uh in philosophy uh, Chris LeBron, who uh, is at John Hopkins. And he and I were talking about the book, and we've been talking about the book um over uh, a number of a number of years. And I was hovering around the themes of faith and darkness. And after a couple of back and forths um with him, uh, this title uh, emerged. um but beh- behind it was on well, the ones i I didn't want uh, an uninteresting title. Um, I, I wanted something that had a kind of literary feel to it. Um, and and that sort of that tried to capture um uh the grandness of the tradition I was uh or that I I have studied, and that's the subject matter of the of, of the book. And I struggled with trying to find a title that could do justice to this and do justice to how the efforts of African Americans um How their efforts to uh, transform the nation was not naive, even as it was still and remains uh, bold in its scope and its desire. So it's at once transformative in a scope, from my understanding, as I sort of describe it in this book. But for just that reason, it's mired in the tragedy of america's racial history and so the dark and light of faith tries to capture all of this and the vast majority of the thinkers in this book hold out faith that the united states can become a racially just society but the articulation of that faith and this is the important part the articulation of that faith must as many of them insist emerge through a confrontation with that racial history and and if that's the sort of orientation of what these thinkers are about, if the orientation is that we got to grapple with the darkest features of our history, their claim is that that confrontation that darkness may yet contain some light and that's how we arrive at the darkened light of faith
2: fantastic um well um, it is an interesting title. So <laughs> so uh uh and uh I think um the way that you just articulate it really captures I think uh the animating um concern ethos of the book even. Um so um let's start with uh w- with the argument now. So um the book proceeds by way of a, a series of encounters uh with a, a range of both African-American political thinkers, but um, others as well, including Thomas Jefferson, Um, all as a way of um, uh, drawing attention to and articulating various kinds of forms of the tension that you just uh, described. So you begin with this examination of David Walker's 1829 appeal to the colored citizens of the world. Um, And of course, and as you point out, um the words appeal and citizens sort of jump out (laughs) uh Mm -hmm. given the time it's written uh um they form the central plank uh of your analysis uh particularly your analysis of judgment and that part of your argument is that uh the idea of an appeal is a kind of humanizing uh uh, uh act right making an appeal is a is a uh, uh a kind of uh, revolutionary uh, uh um, contestatory uh act of acknowledging uh the humanity of the addressee of the appeal um so can you tell us a little bit about your analysis of Walker? Sure. Um, so, so let me so let me back up a little
1: bit and just say a word about uh, uh, David Walker, um, uh, s- since he's not a sort of household philosophical name um, or household name in philosophy. Uh, so, so David Walker, he was born in 1796. His uh, father is enslaved. His mother is free. And so given the sort of um, the custom and laws of the time, his freedom follows that of his uh, of his mother um he is born in wilmington north carolina and he makes his way north uh to boston um 1825 uh roughly and along the way he's being politicized because he's bearing witness to the horror that black people are enduring and so he's in uh boston we have a small um black community at this time uh in uh, in boston And in 1829, he writes this pamphlet, um, The Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, um, but in particular and very expressly to those of the United States. And this is part of Walker's effort to strike a blow at slavery and, more generally, the practices of domination that Black people are experiencing when they are not formally enslaved. And he says very clearly, and at the at the very outset of, of, of the appeal, that the purpose of it is to awaken his afflicted brethren. And that's what he argues. So, what immediately struck me um, as I was doing research for this book, um, and as I was spending time with David Walker, who began to sort of emerge as an important figure in the sort of philosophical story I'm telling about these Black people's commitment to democracy, was the title. I mean, he's using this language, as you said, of of citizen and appeal, and he's using the language of citizen right at a time where uh black people do not have political standing and what little standing they had in the north was being rescinded in uh in the 19th century in this in this period of the of the 18 of the 1820s and what immediately became clear as I was working through the text and situating the text within the wider horizon of discourse because I'm also a historian of political thought. So as I'm situating the text within the wider horizon of philosophical discourse and thinking, what immediately emerges is that Walker does not believe that the foundation of one's citizenly standing is in the first instance determined by a constitutional constitutional recognition. In the first instance, he's arguing essentially that is determined by one's capacity to judge and assess the community to which one belongs. That's for him, that's the foundation of one's citizenly standing. And so, when he appeals to black people, the other title, um, uh, the other word in that title, when he appeals to black people, he calls on them. He's calling on them to use their judgment. All right now, this is not, and and the context here, I think, uh, matters this is not unique to walker um you can you know you can regularly find uh, in the 18th century in the 19th century the word appeal being used in prominent ways whether it's being used in uh, titles or whether it's used in the subject or the body of the text. I mean, the firmest example, of course, is the Declaration of Independence, which appeals to the supreme judge of of the world. But you can often find pamphlets that are appealing to the the great people of Boston, or to an impartial reader, right? And what you quickly come to see, what I came to see was that the appeal was about acknowledging an authority that one believed and thought capable of responding to the issue at hand, the grievance at hand. And so Walker appeals to Black people in this way, and he's seeking to elicit from them the very thing that he claims is the case, that they're citizens. And by virtue of responding to them, of responding to him, answering the appeal, they inscribe their sort of citizenly standing in uh, in uh, in the world. So beginning with Walker seemed necessary Um Um, For two reasons. The first is that Walker marked a sort of major transition from earlier deferential appeals by uh, African-Americans. And so when you read the pamphlet, um, you might think to yourself, well, for someone who's trying to secure freedom, I mean, he has no problem... A shaming and criticizing and going after his white uh, counterparts but he thought that that was necessary. He thought that the, the, the gravity of one's rhetorical engagement right or the intensity of it must match the gravity of the issue. We're talking about um the freedom of of people and I think the, 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 the second reason why why the story begins with Walker is because he captured something quite powerful. That others recognized in him, um, and this is this is the 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 idea that the ability to judge is the foundation of republican or democratic politics. Um, you know, and so and so Walker uh, became the central figure in this way. And I don't argue this in the book, but where I pressed, i i I could make the argument that a great many roads in African American political thought that open up lead in a more unified way back to Walker
2: excellent could you say something um so it, it turns out that the the pamphlet has a much, um, ha, ha, has a longer title <laughs> uh, that helps to shed some light on the the, the the last four words of the shortened title, Citizens of the World. Uh, could you say something a little bit about that? So it's Citizens of the World, particularly, he goes right. on to, right. So, So this is very interesting because Walker in the pamphlet,
1: he doesn't take up in a substantive way that first portion of it, citizens of the world. There are m- moments um, uh, in articles uh, uh article two, for example, where he says very clearly that look to black people, your freedom is, securing of freedom, is tied to the status of all of your afflicted brethren, meaning not just in the United States, but beyond. But the bulk of his analysis focuses on, in particular, in the United States, what ought you to do here in the United States in the face of domination. The world part of this is quite fascinating. Remember that, that point that I just made about these roads that lead into Walker? Because downstream, historically, I don't pursue this line, but downstream historically, particularly as we're in the in the 20th century, the 1920s and 30s we see a great many african american thinkers identifying with anti-colonial movements and identifying their freedom with the security of uh, or with the freedom of uh, securing the freedom of black and brown folks elsewhere what's what's so striking here is that this is already at work in david walker in 1829
2: fantastic fantastic um so just to pick up that on 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 one of the threads that um uh, that you just mentioned, which is the the sort of Republican slash, you know what we sometimes today called neo Republican uh, conception of freedom. Um, so uh, you argue that um, this sort of Republican tradition of thinking about freedom, Republican way of thinking about freedom, um, along with its corresponding Commitments with respect to responsibility and you know the the kind of uh, political or civic virtues um, that this this thread uh, this tradition underlies the arguments of Walker among others and in particular you focus on uh, w- what strikes me as a really important distinction that one can read a lot of Philip Pettit and not um, fully cognize um, uh, the distinction between form of between forms of domination that consist in withholding freedom and those that consist in denying it, where the latter is a kind of um, rejection of the claim that the dominated person is somebody who... it even makes sense to think of as being dominated because they're not the right kind of subject or creature uh uh for whom um arbitrary uh or uh, arbitrary power of interference constitutes a uh, a violation of their freedom um so can you say something about uh the, the those republican resources that you pick up and that particular way in which i think you sharpen them sure
1: sure so um uh, so part 1 of the book is titled "Situating Oneself in the Political World," and Part One is essentially about this capacity of judgment that grounds one citizenly standing that Walker gets off the ground and going. Others join in on this, um, but then judgment in the service of what? So judgment in the service of realizing uh, freedom. So Part One and the most of Part Two, all of Part Two, are about how some african-american thinkers believed you can bring that freedom into existence and they i focus on things about aesthetics about rhetoric um about sort of the malleability of the self but so how but but how do black thinkers in this sort of 19th century period which is roughly part one how are they thinking uh about freedom and so i argue that their conception is drawn from the republican tradition. I want to be, I just have to immediately say something here. When I say drawn from the Republican tradition, I don't uh, mean it in a way that we sometimes stage philosophical conversations, which is this philosopher or this collection of philosophers is responding to that philosopher, um, and that that is the motivation um, of this second group to figure out their relationship in the tradition. That's not precisely what these figures are doing. What they're doing is reaching for resources that can be deployed to respond to their condition. And in the process of reaching for those uh, resources, they also transform them so that they can properly re- fit as a response to their, uh, their condition. So when I when I sort of invoke the tradition of republicanism, well, what tradition do I have in mind? Well, I have that tradition in mind that goes back to uh, Greek and Roman uh, Roman sources. And on this account of republicanism, to be free is uh, to be uh, independent of the arbitrary will of another. If you live at the mercy of another's will without the possibility of redress, you are, as Republicans often say throughout the tradition, you are a slave. You are dominated. But there's some in precision in the development of this uh, in this tradition. And so let me just sort of expand some things that I say, uh, expand some things that are not properly in the book, but that's behind what I'm arguing. So in someone like, for example, in someone like Aristotle, there is this distinction in the politics between the slave by nature and the unnatural slave. And what's worth pointing out here is that those who are turned into slaves, their condition as slaves, Aristotle wants to say, would represent a tragic and demeaning loss of one's civic identity. This distinction between the natural slave and the unnatural slave, it it travels a long way. But it shows itself in the American context early on as the Americans are grappling with the British the British crown. Thomas Jefferson, for example, thought um, that the position that the colonists found themselves in was a position in which the standing that they previously held, the status they previously, previously held, was now being denied to them by the British crown. And and thus, the British crown effectively enslaved them. And the American colonists had a response to this, the, right? I mean, you see it in the Declaration. A prince that acquires the characteristics of a tyrant is not fit to be the ruler of a free people. And to acquire the, the characteristics of a tyrant is now to place the colonists in a relationship with the figure of the king, the tyrant, and they are now living at the arbitrary will uh, of uh, of that king. And so what do they set about doing? Well, we're gonna break from the British crown and we're gonna establish an institutional form that can properly house our freedom against domination. And we're gonna have institutional forms that properly tra- track our concerns and interests. And this is the way we know that our freedom is is resilient. This account of republicanism that I just sort of quickly sketched um, is very much at work in um, the revival of republicanism in figures like Philip Pettit uh, and in the historian uh, Quentin Skinner. So what I argue in uh, in the book is that Black thinkers understood their status as slaves as not following this unnatural slavery line but as following the natural slavery line. And so since it followed the natural slavery line, it was not thought to be, by one's white counterparts, it was not thought to be a tragic and demeaning loss. And more importantly, this idea of Black people as slaves by nature was not in the first instance about institutional configuration. As Black people identified, it was about the ideas and beliefs about them that were in circulation in the wider culture and that informed institutional development and then stood in a kind of reflexive and dynamic relationship between institutions uh, and, uh, and social life. And so, for example, um in chapter three, I talk about Josiah Easton, um, his 1837 treatise, this is a, a minister. Um, he's very concerned about what he calls the, the sort of prejudices about black people that are in circulation. Or Frederick Douglass in 1848, right? He speaks about black people not being personal slaves, but slaves of the community, meaning that 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 they are at the arbitrary mercy of any white person if that person decides to move on them right um or frances harper in 1857 i mean she worries about how the constraints on black people result from what she calls um uh what i say in the book uh, following her a vitiated public opinion and all of this suggests at least for these figures that that what must be targeted is the culture of American life. The ways in which white Americans do not at all appear to be diminished in their own eyes by the practices of domination in which they participate. Um, And this is in part because uh, they don't see black people as humans. Um, And thus, whether it's Douglas, whether it's Easton, whether it's Walker, they argue that it required a transformation of the self-understanding of white Americans not only about the humanity of Black people, but how the denial of the humanity of Black people uh, requires white Americans to deny something in themselves. Uh, And all of this, uh, they argue, uh, speak, speak less to institutional reconfiguration, although that matters, but more significantly to cultural transformation. And it's this theme of culture that seems to escape, I think, um, both the past and and the contemporary revival of republicanism.
2: Great, right. you know, just to um, to make a sort of a, a, a philosopher's point. <laughs> uh, so, you know that, that um, one of the one of the familiar ways in which particularly Pettit sort of explains his freedom as non-domination sort of republican view is by way of an example of what he calls the fortunate slave right this is the person who is legally the property of another but has the good fortune of um being the property of of a of a of a man who has forgotten about him or who is benevolent or who never you know you know never interacts with him um But this distinction that you're drawing here, I think, really shows that there's there's some deep inadequacy, (laughs) right, in thinking about domination. um, In that that petted example does seem to me to rely strictly upon. Uh, As you were just characterizing it, you know, the conception of the slave in to use the Aristotelian distinction, the unnatural, the person who is enslaved, but, you know, um, you know, is enslaved in virtue of having been conquered or, you know, the Aristotle kind of examples, rather than the condition uh uh where a person is enslaved and the, the the good fortune of not ever being visited by one's you know the person who o- allegedly owned you really isn't isn't really the site I take it on your account of you know of the injury and the injustice of of the condition of uh of the natural slave is this right
1: right I mean so the one thing I would so the one thing I would say is that that um pettit is right to follow the tradition um in uh, arguing that the that the problem is is not with the goodness or badness of Mastery the problem is with the very fact of mastering my issue and what I think, this group of figures recognized is that how we think about the domain of mastery is mistakenly in the republican tradition confined to an identifiable agent when in fact when douglas says that we're not slaves we're not personal slaves but slaves of the community the question that now has to emerge is okay well what can possibly authorize the community as such um, to be able to uh, uh, um, uh, exercise dominion over you. And the only way it's gonna do that is through particular agents, but but anyone could exercise dominion over you. And now and now we move not to a story about law and the way the Romans want to talk about uh a slavery. Slavery is a legal status. And we're not talking about uh, a, a, sort of uh, a, a slavery um, simply uh, in the form of identifiable agents. Now we're talking about, well, what's behind all of this? Yeah, right. That makes the culture believe that believe that you're only fit to be a slave and allows them to believe this right at the moment when they themselves are attempting to resist various practices of domination vis-a-vis the British the British crown.
2: Perfect. Perfect. That's
0: extremely helpful. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Um, so um, your book is, is sort of propelled by... Uh, sites of tension that, that you know, be, start with the beginning of the book when you're in your analysis of Walker and then sort of continue. Um, and this tension is between kind of a, a pessimistic view. Sometimes you identify it as a, a view that is common among um, contemporary Afro pessimists and not so much optimism. Uh, but, you know, to, again, employ a, a term that I, I know we're both uh, uh, well disposed towards a sort of Jamesian term, meliorism, um, which is the the sort of middle position between the, the, the pessimism and uh, pessimistic view and an optimistic view. Things could get better if, you know, if we work really hard, maintain the strenuous attitude uh, and get get a little bit lucky, perhaps. Um, so can you tell us uh, how that tension manifests, particularly in one of the. Um, One of the sort of um, the tensions that you return to is sort of uh, uh, personified in these in in these figures, Uh, uh, Martin Delany on one hand and Frederick Douglass on the other. Can you tell us about that sort of engagement?
1: So, so this is one of the sort of fascinating moments in the sort of archive of African American political thought. Uh, two figures who were colleagues, working on a newspaper together, Douglas's newspaper, and then they sort of part ways, um, and they then represent very two different strands within this broader this broader tradition. Uh, Martin Delaney um, is regularly identified as a kind of father of black nationalism. Uh, he had arguments about why uh, black people should sort of pick up and go elsewhere. Uh, and Frederick Douglass is often identified as a kind of a consummate defender of integrationism. And um, in the 1850s, <clears throat> Martin Delaney publishes his treatise uh, of 1852, The Condition, Elevation, Immigration and Destiny of the Colored People of the United States. And Delaney comes to, to think he didn't always hold this view, and this wasn't his final position, but this becomes a very important historical moment in the archive of African American political thought, because it gives life to different strands in the tradition, even as, as Delaney himself changes course. But let's focus on the, 18, the 1850s. So he comes to think that the United States is politically unable to recognize the standard of Black people. And this political inability, he goes on to argue, uh, is really sort of tied to the civic identity of the nation. So that is that the identity of the United States depends, on white Americans to understand their freedom and their grip on it, the domination of of black people, and dominating black people, he argues, and you know it's the hallmark of. Uh, of the exercise of sovereignty, that is precisely what is is denied to black people. And in contrast, to Walker, who, as we spoke about earlier, actually right, he refers to black people as citizens. You know, Delaney is very clear that he has not addressed black people as citizens. Quote: "Because you have never been." And why is that the case? Well, because Delaney thinks that one's status as a citizen comes about through constitutional recognition in which one participates uh, in controlling sovereign power. And so Delaney has a number of recommendations uh, in the 1850s about where black people uh, should go, but it opens up a question and a tension between him and Douglas, because Douglas is committed to the United States. He's committed to call it his home. He thinks it can be transformed. And so one has to figure out how to adjudicate between the two. And what you ultimately come to realize is that they disagree and disagree profoundly on the normative foundations of republicanism. So, so what is the animated standard that legitimizes a republic? Delaney thinks it's the norm of sovereignty as captured in a constitutional framework the constitutional framework of the society. The constitutional framework will indicate who has standing, who has rights, and who has privileges. And those who participate in office holding and decision-making are sovereign, and they determine the the sort of political and ethical identity of of the nation. Um, And the society is legitimate to the extent that rules come about, that laws come about because they're following the appropriate procedures, right? Um, And acknowledging the appropriate people per the constitutional the constitutional structure. So Douglas thinks that this is a mistake. And he thinks that the legitimacy of the Republic in the first instance is tied to the principle of openness. That what makes the polity worthy of respect and obedience is precisely what makes it alive to ongoing grievances of those over whom it exercises power. And so Douglas first says that look, freedom and slavery can never be reconciled. And there's a story about that one could tell about natural rights and natural law that's informing that. But in the second instance, he says that the American polity, in order to understand it, we have to understand that it is never fully settled. That the that the institutions that function and claim to speak in the people's name will always be less than the potential grievances of the people in whose name it constantly claims to speak. And he thinks that that this actually opens up a space of contestation. It is what, if you want to think in sort of narrow, in our present moment, in narrow institutional electoral terms, well, why do we keep coming back and voting? The thought is that we could get another shot at it, and Douglas would claim that that institutional feature comes about because of this background normative commitment to openness, and that normative commitment to to to, to openness uh, is the sort of engine. That drives uh, the the polity, and it is what generates a sense of gives the polity legitimacy. And so, Douglas and Delaney are having these different, you sort of these sort of disagreements uh, around the normative foundations. But those those disagreements actually then point to something else. Delaney thinks that look, I don't have any hope that this place can be otherwise because as I look around. And as I look at the evidence of who has standing, Black people are not included. Douglas says, well, the principle is openness. And yes, Black people are not included, um, but they can push and, and struggle and transform their white counterparts and potentially make it something else. And Douglas says he has faith that the nation could be otherwise. And so, so this disagreement around the normative foundations also turns out to be a disagreement about the place of, uh, of, um, uh, um, the, sort of the sort of status of, of evidence and the sort of evidentiary foundation of one's commitments and loyalties to a polity.
2: Excellent. Can I ask, uh, maybe this is a, a, um, a biographical question about Delaney, because um, I can imagine... The sort of hard-nosed, almost what we might think of in sort of philosophy of jurisprudence, sort of positivist sort of conception, right? This The polity is its structures. Its structures are defined by way of these documents and their interpretation. And the people who hold office are the people who are making legislation. And there's no... Um, There's no aspirational horizon that provides a moral background by means of which or to which we can appeal when we're critiquing society. I can imagine that kind of sort of hard-nosed, again, in the philosophical sense, positivistic conception being the outgrowth of a kind of empiricist temperament. Um, But I could also imagine it being a, a moral position that one is driven to by way of uh, um, a kind of observation about the world now i guess the question is sort of how do you read delaney on this is it that he sees no grounds not only does he see no grounds for the kind of position that douglas is championing not only does he see no grounds for it but he sees The grounds that the facts as they present themselves suggest that to Delaney, that the Douglas view is um, insufficiently attuned to the to to the realities uh, of the situation. Or do you think it's a more just a, um, a kind of philosophical view about, look, here's, you know, almost like Hobbes, here's how we define these things. This is is there any indication as to whether he was driven to relinquish hope? Uh, or does he just have a social scientist's conception of uh how to understand the political world right so i think so i you
1: know so i think it's of a mixed it's of a mixed bag Good. <laughs> so, but before i say a word about this let me just sort of step back yet again and say a word about how i'm generally reading all of these figures so so i read these these figures from from uh walker down to james baldwin i really read them as as contributing to a kind of public philosophy, um, and there's a couple of things to, to to sort of pay attention to in this regard, which is, is that it's a kind of philosophizing that's in the middle of things, and on the go, okay. right? Because the urgency of the moment is pressing up on them, um, but they also. They they also think that behind the urgency of that moment that's pressing on them, there are a set of ideas at work in that society <laughs> that help it move in one way rather than another. And so, in responding, they're trying to offer up a set of arguments that they think that both their black and white counterparts can undertake. And the white counterparts that they have in mind are less those who are the staunch racists who have enslaved black people, and those who, for one reason or another, seem to be on the fence about these things. Uh, And so, they're trying to offer up um, really rich and sophisticated arguments to a population. Um that is um uh consuming these kinds of these kinds of things or positioned to consume these kinds of things. in Delaney's case, you know, Delaney was at at what would become you know Harvard's Medical school. He was admitted um um by Oliver Wendell Holmes senior. and uh um, the students are just beside themselves because they think that the quality of their degree will be lessened by the place of Delaney. So he's admitted he's in class and then he's asked to leave. And right at the time, I always do this with my students where I say, imagine that right now you open up your email and you have a message from the dean saying that you have to leave and you have to leave because of your skin color, your eye color, your hair. Just imagine your whole whole future is tied to this moment. It's a plan of life. And so he's asked to leave. And then, of course, you get the uh, passage of the 1850 fugitive slave law. And these things are, are taken as evidence to someone who was already, he's in medical school, empirically inclined. And is at this moment where he says, look, we need to put the moral philosophizing into the side and attend to the facts. And one thing that I must, you know, as you know in the book, I'm critical of Delaney um, in, you know, through Douglas, right? So I sort of laying out Douglas and critical of, of Delaney in that way. Um, but there's no way to deny that this move by Delaney emanates from a deep and profound uh love and affection for black people, and the claim that look, how many more lives
2: you want to wager? No your losses yeah 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 exactly yeah. um good. let's move on then because um the uh this tension between Delaney and Douglas enables sort of another um a, and perhaps a different kind of um sort of conflict uh and, and maybe that comes up in the um if not the character at least some of the the public writings of Thomas Jefferson um so Jefferson plays this pivotal ambivalent role in your analysis um partly because um you find in uh in his writing um two distinct conceptions of the people (laughs) uh two different ways of appealing even to the people uh at work in the the sort of this this founder's thinking um can you sort of lay that out for us a bit sure sure so uh
1: so one of the things that i argue is that you know um you see in the tradition of American political thought and philosophizing, and then you see in our public discourse that we're constantly invoking the discourse of the people. Um, and we're constantly speaking in the name of the people. And sometimes that term is just simply a descriptive claim. The people who have rights and privileges per the Constitution. Thomas Jefferson had that this in mind. But Jefferson also had in mind in part because he too was committed to the principle of openness that sometimes when we invoke the people we're invoking a thing that is not yet and attempting to call it into existence uh it is a people as aspiration and it is this second description that that jefferson thought was uh, the means through which um the american polity expands uh expands itself he also thought that this would be the means by which we would guard against a kind of a, a kind of constitutional idolatry right and the Jefferson wasn't alone. I mean, you find the same idea um, in James Wilson's lectures on law in the 1790s. So this language of the people, I mean, I focus on Jefferson as a way um, to get, you know, Jefferson serves as a kind of shorthand for a wider tradition of thinking in uh, among American thinkers. But the thing that this idea of the people helps me to make sense of is what is behind these black figures as they're thinking, as they're appealing? Who are they appealing to? Well, they're appealing to this aspirational view. But there's another reason why Jefferson appears that's not articulated in the book. But and this is a great thing about doing an interview, which you could say it now. <laughs> <laughs> great. There is, Bob. There is this way of treating African American thinkers in which, in order to isolate the integrity of their thinking, uh, you have to reveal a kind of radical novelty or originality to them. The thought that they could be making use of this tradition in Jefferson, you know, is taken to be a practice of authorizing their voice and that somehow they need it in order to enjoy standing. And and so part of the reason why Jefferson appears is not just simply because it's historically accurate, but also because there's ways in which these black figures are drawn on this tradition and putting it to ends that figures like Jefferson could never imagine. This is precisely the dynamism and the magic Douglas thought that was laying in wait in this concept of when the openness of, of, of society. And so I try, I spent a good bit of time trying to sort of talk about how Jefferson conceptualized these two ideas and the ways in which he then offers up his own distinctive account uh, that actually betrays the openness that philosophically he defends. And so now we knew, we need new thinkers <laughs> Right, other resources that do better justice to an idea that Jefferson laid out, but he did that properly, uh, uh, pursue and take up, A- and and thus we need someone like David Walker, we need someone like Douglas, Ida B.
2: Wells. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, so let's pick up on uh, uh, on uh, on uh, the last name you just mentioned, Ida B. Wells. Um, so again, the book um, tries to be synoptic uh in that we're not just focusing Melvin sort of on the pamphlets the arguments the the abolition uh, uh the accounts of the justice of abolition um we're also looking uh at aesthetic uh rhetorical uh uh sources um uh in particular uh you talk about um Ida B Wells and Billy Holiday um as um uh, uh african american commentators who are using different kinds of tools um for um exposing uh uh the horror of uh uh, uh african american vulnerability can you tell us a bit about uh um bringing those two um distinctive because of the different means that they're using on your account, but maybe distinctive in lots of other ways too. voices into the conversation.
1: Right. No, that's great. So now um, now we're moving into the late 19th century and into the 20th. So we're we're in motion now. And so now we know from uh, David Walker, black people situate themselves in the world to the capacity of judgment. What is it in the service of freedom? How does that realize itself uh, in the world? through appeals to the people, this aspirational view. Well, well, well what are the various tools and practices you're gonna use? Well, first you wanna see people as aesthetic and malleable creatures, which is what this tradition, uh, is how this tradition uh, uh, views uh, human nature. Um, and aesthetics becomes a means by which you move people to these this sort of, uh, move them to embrace a vision of themselves that's not yet in circulation. And Ida B. Wells writing at the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, right? She's the famous um, uh, anti lynching journalist, right? Um, Who is putting on dramatic display, graphic display um, narrations of lynchings that have happened uh, to black people. And the aim is really to shame Uh, The American public and move, as she says, uh, the consciousness of the nation. Now, most people, uh, most scholars, when they study Ida B. Wells, they sort of focus on um, the the ways in which the accusation that was often leveled against black men that they were attempting to rape white women. that um, they focus on the ways in which she reveals often that that was never the case. And that was really about uh, white men attempting to sort of protect their standing through their patriarchy. And the way you do it is to sort of extinguish these black men. You you lynch them, and not only lynch them, but you lynch them in, in brutal, and mutilate their bodies in brutal ways to dramatize for the African-American community, this is what can happen when you're under the foot. Undialable. This is right, and the scholars that have pursued, pursued this and the analysis of, of Ida B. Wells are absolutely right. But I think that there is this other side of Ida B. Wells that deals with the kind of moral psychology of, of of Americans. She's interested in the American psyche, and she will often deploy language like horror. Um, Southern Horror is the title of a book horror um uh the uh, people are barbaric they're inhumane they're cruel she used a lot of graphic language to, to sort of describe Hawaii counterparts and she's doing it because she thinks she's trying to persuade her readers that horror is not the kind of thing from which you recoil that really bespeaks your lack of power right uh, that that the that the monsters are human beings and that horror itself um, uh, should be a call to action. That in order to respond to the horror, one has to become a different kind of human being, right? Not the monster that is on display. And thus horror is not a revelation of your powerlessness. In fact, it may be the expression of your agency and your autonomy as as democratic citizens, right? And, but, but all of this, only gets off the ground if you believe, as she did, that her audience um, are, are the kinds of people that can be moved. The other thing I would say about this is that she's also using horror to shame them because she knows, and this is the rhetorical dimension of her. she knows her American audience. She knows that they're attached to the discourse of civilizational development. Right with the tale of the nineteenth century and the twentieth century, all this language about America being the pinnacle of civilization, and what she says in the eighteen nineties as she's on tour, um, on an international tour, is this the expression of civilization? Right, right, and all of this is part of a shaming tactic, uh, in part because she 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 thinks, and this is one of the points of of, of the book, that that democratic agency. Um, is about also learning how to be properly alive and responsive to the grievances of your fellows. Um, and then I argue that that in the 1930s, we see a similar, whereas, whereas Ida B. Wells gives you kind of a textual version of this, Billie Holiday gives you a performative version of this, right? She's singing a strange fruit. Um, this is based on the poem from Abel Maripole, A Bitter Fruit, and then... Billy Holiday makes it a hit. He had hoped she would she would do this. She makes it a hit, but she has this performative way of moving, and the performative way of moving her gestures, right? They perform her philosophical commitments, right? Um, she wants her audience um, to cringe in the way she does at the horror of 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 lynching because she wants you to understand that this is strange fruit, that it is not anything that's going to provide for your sustenance. Uh, quite the opposite. Uh, it's going to harm the soul,
2: right? Right. Egypt, um, uh, I, I heard a talk um, a, a while back, not, not too long ago, by Derek Darby, um, where um, part of, I take it, a project that he's n- n- now finishing um, has to do with jazz musicians um who deliberately um uh sort of work against in their music and in their compositions against a trope of the the black musician as an entertainer um and so but part of what I, I i i i took from your discussion is that uh, of billy holiday is that her performance of uh, uh of strange fruit the recording but also the 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 performance of it sort of fits into that kind of that kind of story that this is a um i know it's a sort of a a, a cliche kind of term, consciousness raising sort of it's not entertainment now right this is a kind of confrontation maybe a, a um uh, less overt f- form of political contestation and confrontation, but a, de- a, a rejection, a denial, performative denial of uh, "I'm a singer who's here to entertain white folks," uh, and more of a, a a kind of political political statement. Does that seem right to you? No, I mean that's absolutely right. And
1: in her in her various performances, when she was sort of confronted with it as entertainment, she's rejected it outright. When, reportedly, when her mother was concerned about her performing the song, she argued that she thought that this could make things better. And Ellison, Rob Ellison, I think was a bit more honest about this, where he would say, yes, it is art of an entertainment, but it is much more. It is a way of confronting reality. And it is a way of putting it in front of your audience in very subtle and textured ways that sort of penetrates, or Ellison thought that can sort of penetrate the very sort of um uh our bodily movements of, of democratic of democratic citizens, right? Um and the, you know, and the thought, of course, you know, uh, it is a point that I think Walt Whitman makes uh, in the 1870s that democracy and Bob you've said this that, that that democracy is the moral proposition right that ordinary everyday people can get on uh together and dealing with their problems without having to bow to bosses or kings and the like and Whitman's claim is that yes but that very idea must animate the very soul of those that we claim to be democratic right all right,
2: right, right. Fantastic. Um, so, Melvin, you, you, you've been really generous with your time. It's, it's always nice talking to you. And um, the book is there's so much in the book that we're not uh, that we're not uh, addressing. Um, so folks, you know, there's a lot more, a lot more, a lot more than what we've been discussing. But I do want to get to um, uh, the, 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 the final, the, the, the final chapter, the end of the book. Um, you discuss what you call James Baldwin's gift. Um can you tell us about um the sort of which is a I read the end of your book as a kind of culmination of the the various threads you're pulling things together and making this um uh this overture in in, in on behalf of and in defense of um of 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 the light of faith in the the democratic project. Uh can you tell us a bit about uh about the, the, the tones at the end of the book?
1: Right. So, so, Bob, at the end, so the thing that I was concerned with as I was coming to the end of the book is the ways in which my def, sort of my tracking of the tradition and its defense of aspirational politics can easily be captured by our intellectual and and public philosophical tendencies to sort of think about the United States as exceptional. Um, and historians and philosophers, uh it, Uh, in the United States have tried and tried again to push back against this. And my thought is I'll I'll add my voice to to the chorus. And so the the issue was, well, how do I guard against reading this tradition as I've been describing it, um, since it articulates very nicely with exceptional, with the exceptionalism of America? How do I guard against that collapse? And so uh, Baldwin, um um and this and this and the swedish economist Gunnar to who writes american dilemma as he's grappling with the problem of race in the united states they presented uh wonderful opportunities to then deal with this and historically it was sort of consistent with the line of the argument that i that i was that i was telling um and Miral on my account represents a kind of deformed aspirational politics as he's dealing with the problem of inequality, racial inequality, and that Baldwin has seemed to me provided uh, a something more. So what's the deformed account? Well, in Gunnar Midall's American Dilemma of 44, we see a figure, he's been commissioned by the Carnegie Corporation to, to sort of grapple with racial inequality, and we see someone who is deeply and profoundly animated, by this problem and is very much concerned to address it so this is not someone uninterested in this and he says that it that the reason why it persists is because it's a violation of the american creed and the american creed is 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 basically think the principles of the declaration right um that's the american creed and he, he says that the american creed is our origin story it is who we really are we violate it well, if it is who we really are, the story of racial inequality figures historically in a very odd way. It now appears to be anomalous. It now appears to be an apparition. It now doesn't appear to emanate from um, um, uh, our national will as guided by the American creed. And all of this um, puts his readers in a position. Not to confront the truth that Baldwin thinks one must confront is that white supremacy and racial inequality is part of our tradition. It emanates from our will. Um, that it is on par with our simultaneous commitment <laughs> to freedom and equality, and it has sort of dulled the the, the sort of the life of the nation. And so, what, what Baldwin recommends is that. One, we have to confront that historical reality um, and confront it not simply in narrating the past and narrating it in in a way that shows us constantly writing our trajectory. No, we have to confront it as our inheritance. right? Because it has shaped the landscape in which we find ourselves. (laughs) But if it is our inheritance, we need, Baldwin argues, a very sort of capacious sense of community and responsibility to address it. And so he offers up what I argue is a kind of shared notion of of responsibility. And I try to say this notion of responsibility looks very different than a sort of typical individualized account of responsibility. Um, but I think the sort of final and most troubling, that might be the troubling part for for, for, for most people is the, the, the claim, Baldwin's claim, is that those deeds of the past were a fatal flaw. They were a fatal flaw of the nation. And it appears that even amid our attempt to respond to it, it will be something that will stay with us. And Baldwin says it will, because it's trauma. It has stained the nation, right? Um, And that then cuts against our typical idea of thinking about our responses as part of our progressive arc, that redeems what was done in the past. And Baldwin says, no, there's no redemption. You can have atonement, where atonement is a kind of a brightness and a clear eye view about the problem, a way of holding it in view and the way it ripples across, the to- across time as a way to sort of structure your utterances and responses, legal, ethical. Um, and an attempt to constantly hold on to one's humanity in the face of this thing that's constantly threatening to sort of reassert itself and and Baldwin thinks that 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 is at once tragic but in the constant grappling we might find some light there um and that's he's you know that's community work he thinks um, and he thinks that's ways we that's the way we begin to communicate new um, sources of value about each other, right? And so now he allows us to hold on to progress talk, but he disentangles it from redemption.
2: right. And so much of progress, um, the, the the sort of arc of progress that the country seems to be really invested in, is anti baldwinian in the following sense, because it always has this, we're post-racial, you know, that was the, it's over now, right? It's sort of, we elected Obama. Now all that stuff is done. We fixed it. So it is kind of a, a kind of fixing conception of progress rather than a, um, well, again, a meliorist conception of finding new and better ways to cope and struggle and acknowledge while also um, not fixing, but, 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 but improving um well M- M- melvin we could talk o- for a long time um i really want to thank you uh though uh this went by quickly um uh thank you for for talking to me uh, on new books and philosophy about your book
1: thank you for having me this is wonderful
2: <laughs> great um uh, it's really been a pleasure um and let me thank uh our listeners so thanks listeners uh for joining uh me and melvin um We've been discussing Melvin Rogers' new book. It's really, really fantastic. Highly recommend it. It's published with Princeton University Press, and it's brand new. Um, The title of Melvin's book is The Darkened Light of Faith. Thank you for tuning into New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.